Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 24, and I want to begin by reading from verse 3, and if you don't mind, would you stand with me? I know that you need to get warm anyway, so it's... Uh... <laughs> Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 3, the text reads as follows, says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, tell us, they said, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. But then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Let's start with prayer. Father, I ask as we look to your word this evening that your Holy Spirit would uh, guide and lead and direct us, Lord, that there would be this perfect meeting, Lord, of not only our hearts and our minds, but also your word and your truth, that we might be firmly settled in our confidence that not only are you God, but that you're God who controls the universe and who has a plan and a purpose that you are going to bring to pass. We just pray, God, that we would learn to live in the light of that eternal truth, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This evening, I want to limit the focus of our study to what I referred to as the events that precede the time referred to as the tribulation, and that's why we call them pre-tribulation events, things that will take place. And in saying that, our references are going to be wide and varied. I mean, we're looking at both the Old and the New Testament, Daniel chapter 9, Zechariah chapter 12, Ezekiel 38 and 39, 2 Thessalonians, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and so forth. And so, but I want to begin with a small disclaimer, and it's simply that when you talk about the events that precede the Great Tribulation period, um, there's a lot of opinion, and what I'm going to give you is my best guesses. So I'm going to be speculating on the chronology or the timing of these events, uh, and even in the midst of the message, I may decide to change my mind, uh, because it's not something that you can really, you know, park on and say, I know this for sure. What I do know for certain is the events that are described are going to happen, but they may unfold in a time and a manner that's a bit different than I might anticipate. And so it, it really, uh, I just want to let you know that I'm going to be giving you my best guesses in that regard. But I want to begin with where we started reading here in our opening, this passage that's referred to uh, commonly as the Olivet Discourse because it was delivered by Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Right immediately after Jesus had left the upper room with the disciples and he, in, he basically introduced communion, the last supper to the church, they journeyed from the western hills of Jerusalem where the upper room was down to the Kidron Valley and across the valley up to the Mount of Olives. 
And there's a church there today which is built over the top of a cave, which very, very likely may have been the place where Jesus and his disciples would have spent the night. And I won't, don't have time to go into why we think that's true. But nonetheless, he's in this setting with his disciples. And an interesting questions come up, actually two questions. Because previously in the day, we're told by Mark that they had been marveling, his disciples, at the architecture of the temple. I mean, it was the largest and probably one of the most ordate, ornate physical structures on the planet at that time. At that time, much of Rome was still built by, out of wooden shacks, and the temple in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem itself, was one of the grandest, most glorious cities in the world. The massive walls surrounding the temple, rising at some points to 130 or 40 feet tall, and a huge, massive platform was artificially built by underground arches, which enabled as many as 100,000 people to gather on the Temple Mount at one particular time. And added to this all the ornateness, the gold, the jewelry, the decorations, the, the overlays of all these things. And it was a building that literally you would have been staggered. In fact, in the morning when the sun would rise and shine off the temple, it would hit the doors of the temple itself, which were basically sheets of hammered gold. Uh, and it would have radiated out like the brightness of the sun. It's just a very magnificent building. It's not surprising that they would comment to Jesus saying, what amazingly wonderful grandeur, massive building this is. And Jesus stunned them by his response. He said in Matthew 24, he said, do you see all these things? And he says, I tell you the truth that not one stone here will be left on another. Every stone will be thrown down. Now, the largest stone that we have been able to identify from the Temple Mount weighed 700 tons. It's 70 feet long, 14 feet deep, 10 feet or 12 feet tall. This is massive. And Jesus says not one of these stones will be left on itself. And in fact, today when you go to the Temple Mount, you can see the excavations where they literally dug up around where the stones literally were toppled from the top of the Temple Mount and dropped around the edges and quite literally, we can say that prophecy was fulfilled to the detail. But then we find that it says in Mark's gospel that Peter, James, John, and Andrew, while they're on the Mount of Olives, asked Jesus this question privately. They said, tell us, number one, when will this happen? When will the temple be destroyed? And we know exactly when that happened. It happened in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed it. But the second question is more to our interest. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And it's interesting how Jesus follows that question. He begins really with a note of caution that I find is often uh, ignored or misunderstood. He begins by telling him things that are going to happen that are not signs of the end times, but often I find they're cited by various people as being signs of the time. For example, uh, he begins by saying that there will be this period of what's called birth pains. And, and birth pains, we have to understand, isn't talking about labor. Uh, most of you, those of you women who have been pregnant know that birth pains are often the cramping that a woman begins to dominantly experience as her body adjusts to the fact that she's pregnant. It's often the indication that she's become pregnant, not that she's about to deliver. 
And that's the term that Jesus uses here. He said the beginning of birth pangs, and he lists what they are. Uh, in fact, Luke 21 puts them this way, that there'll be false teachers, there'll be false prophets. He, we imply that there's false religious movements. Uh, he said that there's going to be conflicts amongst nations, uh, even revolutions and wars, uh, great earthquakes, famines, pestilences, fearful events, great signs from heaven, and persecution. Well, one of the things we know from, uh, seven, from three, 33 AD up until the present time, that all of these things have been transpiring on the planet with pretty much regularity. There's, those aren't really things that we would stand out. And what Jesus says to him is, when you see these things, understand that these are going to be the normative events. Just because something cataclysmic or terrible happens or there's upheaval and so forth, don't automatically assume that that's an indication that you're in the end times. Now, one of the things that's fascinating about church history is you find that throughout the history of the church, every time something like this happened, the church always responded by saying, well, these are obviously the end times. Even most recently, when Adolf Hitler was ro running across Europe, and probably was fairly good reason, people were saying he is the Antichrist and we're coming to the end of the world. And, you know, but on the surface, I, I probably would have been signed up for that with everybody else. In fact, I remember my pastor saying back in, in 1981, because of some numerological adjustments that he had made, he says, I can't see, uh, you know, us being here past, uh, you know, next year. And I've had various friends and people I respect who have often kind of picked certain times and said, I'm sure that the Lord's going to be coming soon. In fact, when I was first a believer, I remember one pastor saying to me, I can't envision us being here for another two years. I'm sure the rapture will happen within that time frame. And he was pretty close. That was only 47 years ago. But, you know, there again, that's not much time to God. It's a lot of time to me, but nonetheless. So I think there's, there's this is, a, I think, a, a problem because I, don't, I think this was the very thing Jesus was cautioning us about. And he was saying, you know, just because things go crazy in your world doesn't mean that you're at the time of the end. But then he says something that's interesting. But regarding those things, he adds, he says, don't be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. All these are the beginning of birth pains. But then he comes to the word. It's interesting. He says, but then. And when he says then, he starts talking about what we might say, if we're going to put it in, into uh, pregnancy terms, that there will begin this time of hard labor. And we know that in terms of the gestational cycle, that when a woman begins to be very near delivery, she begins to feel abdominal pains and cramps uh, much more significantly, much more severe. It becomes evident because this is discomfort of a different kind. And what Jesus wanted us to understand is that when we come to the times of the end, it's not going to be like we can't recognize it because not only have we been given information about what's coming in the world, but it's going to be pretty obvious that this is not normal, that the world is moving in directions heretofore unseen. And there are six things that, that I want to focus on, and I, I can't go into the detail tonight that I might like to just because of the time constraints that we have, but I put them in what I think could be a possible order. But as I said before, as I was driving over here this evening and thinking about it, I started wanting to move some of them around. So, so don't hold me to this chronology, okay? This is just, just my thought. But where I want to start with is talking about Israel and Jerusalem.
Because as someone once said years ago, that Israel is God's timepiece. In a way that Israel was where God began his clear revelation of salvation. And he makes it very clear that in the end, God is going to finish the work that he began with Israel. In Romans 11, Paul says, in the last days, all Israel will be saved. And so one of the things that is often a misunderstanding of the book of Revelation is most of the book of Revelation is about God's dealing with Israel, not the church. And I'll give you a little bit more on why I think that's the case later on. But he begins by, in in chapter 21 of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus makes his triumphal entry, we have what we call the cursing of the fig tree. And the reason I say that is because I believe, and many others do, some do disagree, but that's, they're wrong. But they're, you know, that the, the fig tree is really emblematic of Israel. He's talking about Israel being that fig tree. And he says the following, he says, Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again, and immediately the tree withered. And the whole point was, I think, that Jesus was saying parabolically, not because he had some issue with fig trees, or we would say, boy, boy, he sure was irritable that morning. He didn't get his coffee before he went out or something. No, he was trying to make a statement. You know, unlike you and me, Jesus had no wasted moments. He had no wasted motions. Everything meant something. And so he did this because this means something. And I believe what it means is the fig tree is Israel. I think I confirmed that further on. Because he says he came to Israel looking for fruit. It had all the external religious trappings of being ready to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. But when he came to them, there was nothing on it. And he said because of that, they would wither. Now, we don't often think of Jesus as being a prophet. But just regarding the destruction of of Jerusalem... And, and the destruction of the nation and the captivity that would follow, we have five different times in which Jesus prophesied that. And we know, because we can date when the texts were written, that these were prophecies because he said them well before they actually happened. And he said, this is going to be the fruit. The tree is going to die and wither, and basically the nation is going to be scattered until the time of the end. Because later on in chapter 24... Jesus, after giving signs of the last times, makes this statement. He says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Again, the context of that is the end times, the second coming of Christ. And so it's very clear that Jesus is saying, learn the lesson of what I just gave you in the fig tree a few days before, that when it begins to come back to life, then you know that the time of harvest is drawing near. That's why from people who have studied prophecy, uh, Israel becoming a nation in 1948 was a pretty notable event. I mean, when Isaiah asked the prophet, question in Isaiah 66. He says, can a nation be born in a day? Well, we have one nation in the history of the world was born in a day. In 1948, the United Nations declared that Israel was a nation. And overnight, they became a nation. And they have blossomed and bloomed. Even as Isaiah said, the desert will bloom. Israel now is one of the strongest, most prosperous and advanced uh, countries in the world. When we were going through our financial difficulties, they were sailing right through because they had anticipated it and prepared not to get hit like we did. But they have the highest number of technological startups of any country in the world. So that it has become one of the most amazing and prosperous countries on the planet and advanced not only in sciences but in technology. In fact, it's amazing that over 
the, the, the vast majority of Nobel Prize winners are people of Jewish descent. So there are people who are kind of uh, blessed by God in a unique way. But in this time, we find that country not only coming back into existence, but blossoming and being fruitful. It's important to realize is that any nation that's ever been conquered, and especially if they've been taken into captivity, cease to exist. The national and cultural identity disappears within 70 years. And yet Israel is the one historical anomaly that here we are over 2,000 years later, and they're still speaking uh, the language of Hebrew that their forefathers spoke. They still worship God, that they, that religion the same way that they did. In other words, the culture has been preserved and that not only just the national identity. We have no other example on the history, uh, in the history of the world. There's no other country. I mean, it's like, when's the last time you, 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 know, you met somebody from some dead culture? When's the last time you met an Assyrian you know, or, a, or a Babylonian? I mean, they, they got conquered, defeated, carried away, and they just stopped being. And yet here we have Israel, which is this historical anomaly in and of itself. But it's within the context of that, not just that the nation came back into existence, but that Jerusalem would be reestablished as its capital. Um, again, Jesus foretold their destruction. When he said to them in, in Mark 24 and, and, and Mark 13 and Matthew 24 that not one stone here will be left on another, everyone will be thrown down. At the time, they might have thought, well, how literally should we take that? And yet, it is fulfilled with total literalness. That's why Jesus said in Luke 21, he said, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you'll know that its desolation is near. Again, the context was 70 AD. He told them in advance. In fact, the church in Jerusalem survived the conquest of the Romans because of this prophecy. We're told by the historians that they literally saw the Roman army marching towards Jerusalem. They packed their bags and they went across the Jordan River and went up to the city of Pella and survived the destruction that came upon the rest of the Jewish nation, which actually ran into Jerusalem to seek refuge. But he also said that one day, the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed by the Romans would be rebuilt, and that Israel would be crowned as the capital of this nation. In Luke 21, 24, Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The word trampled on there literally means walked upon in a, in a dominant way. In other words, they will be controlled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. What is the time of the Gentiles? The time of the Gentiles refers to that period from when beginning with Israel being taken away captivity and God's focus of redemption is on the nations of the world. But in the end of history, he said, he will then once again focus on the Jews. And I think part of that ties in with the idea that the church will not be present. We will be raptured away. But he will turn back and finish the work that he began with Israel in the end times, which is what the book of Revelation, I believe, is primarily about. But again, I'll keep on reinforcing that point until you're convinced. But what we're told is that there has to be a temple. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9, when the Lord told Daniel about the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity of Jews, and then he finally said there would be one final week of years, basically a week referring to seven-year period at the end of history. And he says that when that happens, that on the wings of the temple, the Antichrist will set up an abomination that causes desolation. 
Jesus, when Matthew 24 talks about when you see the abomination of desolation, he says to the Jews, it's time to get out of town. Well, here again, Daniel says he does this abomination in what? In the temple. So on one hand, he just got done telling them in chapter 24, the temple's going to be destroyed, and yet there's going to be a temple that the Antichrist is going to put his image in. And we refer to this as the third temple, because the first temple was built by Solomon. It was, the second temple was rebuilt by Herod, or excuse me, it was rebuilt by the Nehemiah, and then it was remodeled by Herod. And the third temple we call the one that's built in the end of history. There's a fourth temple spoken of in Ezekiel 40 through 48, which is during the millennial period. So just make sure that you get your temples right. <laughs> All to say that there's a temple in the last days, a Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And that's a whole lengthy discussion. Books are written about it. How do you accommodate the Dome of the Rock and the Mosque of Omar and that whole Jew Muslim uh, sanctuary that's there today? Uh, we don't have time to get into that, but it's a fascinating discussion nonetheless. But again, even Paul said that in these end times when the lawless one, the Antichrist, the beast comes to power, that he says he sits as God in the temple of God and having people worship him as God. So we have to understand that in the end times, he says, Jerusalem is going to come back under Jewish control, but is it, it's still partly trampled on by the Gentiles because the Temple Mount is still in the hands of the Muslim Wach, and, and they control it. And so it's, I, I personally think that it's not until the temple is rebuilt. Now, if you're wondering if anybody's working on that, there's a group called the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, which are as serious as a heart attack about rebuilding the temple. I mean, this is their whole thing. They're training. They have school for training priests. They, have, they built all the furniture. Even the golden lampstand took a million dollars worth of gold to build this seven-foot-tall candelabra uh, that goes in the temple. Every year, they carry a, 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 a cornerstone up towards or towards the, uh, the uh, Temple Mount in a symbolic effort to lay the cornerstone to start the work of rebuilding the temple. And of course, the uh, Israeli police stop them every year because they know that literally, if I can use this phrase, all hell would break loose if they let them do it. So it's, it's, this, it's this ongoing dynamic. But these people feel that their whole purpose in life as Jews, Orthodox Jews, is to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And they've made all of the preparations for that to take place whenever the opportunity arises. But here's what's something that's also interesting to me. Because it appears to me from prophecy that the Antichrist, when he comes to his one world government, is actually going to make the capital of that one world government, Jerusalem. And we might think that would be a strange choice, but you know, Jerusalem has this interesting designation. When in 1948 they were made a nation, there was a following resolution in 1949 that the city of Jerusalem would be, the term they use in Latin would be uh, corpus separatum. And what it simply means is that the city of Jerusalem would be an international city with an international regime. It would have special status that made it independent of any particular country. And so this was the UN's effort to try to solve the conflict that they knew would come with two states, uh, Arab and Jewish, or now they say Palestinian and Jewish, both claiming that Jerusalem was their hereditary capital. And they say, well, the way we'll get around that is we'll just say it's an international city. It belongs to all the face of the world and all the people of the world. 
And so there's a series of events that's going to lead up to somehow the Dome of the Rock has to disappear. Um, and um, again, some people have different ideas that they call the northern conjecture and the southern conjecture. But the best research says, no, the temple exists where the Dome of the Rock once is now. And it has to be removed in order for the temple to be rebuilt. What brings that about? Well, I have a theory. Uh, but this idea that Jerusalem is a special city in the, on the planet with unique status is tantalizing to me. And that's why even when we talk about current events, I always try to encourage people, read the news or listen to news reports with an eye to biblical prophecy because the Bible is telling you in advance what the news stories are going to be. And that's why it just really struck me when, you know, when uh, David Friedman was chosen to be our next ambassador to Israel. Uh, you know, if you know anything about David Friedman, you realize this guy is, I mean, he's not, he's not one of these ambassadors who pretends that he's in the middle someplace. He is pro-Jewish uh, in, in every simple way. In fact, he made this statement. I intend to work tirelessly, he said, to strengthen the unbreakable bond between our two countries, speaking the U.S. and Israel, and advance the cause of peace within the region and look forward to doing this from the U.S. Embassy in Israel's eternal capital, Jerusalem. So when you think about signs of times, keep your eyes on Jerusalem and things that are developing in the Middle East with Israel. But the second thing that Jesus said would be a sign of those end times is not nearly as uh, attractive. He said it would be a time in which the church would go through universal persecution and there would be universal apostasy. He said it this way in Matthew, and he says it again in Luke, he says it again in Mark. He says, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness, and the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved." Paul, I think, picking up on that writes to the Thessalonians, and when he's talking about the last days in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, he said that day will not come until the falling away, or the, the word there in the Greek is apostasia, where we get our word apostasy, until the apostasy comes first. There are those, and I've seen the websites and different people who are saying, well, I believe that before Jesus comes, there will be this great revival and turning back to Christ. The book of Revelation does speak of people getting saved during the tribulation in some very unusual ways. Angels flying from through heaven proclaiming the everlasting gospel, the witness, the two witnesses. The, we'll get into a lot of this stuff next week when we go through the uh, series of events that are described in the book of Revelation. But what's interesting is it doesn't, we have no place in the scriptures that says there will be this great turning to Christ as we get to the end. It says just the opposite. That what we're going to see, and one of the signs we'll look to, is that there will come a, a corruption of the faith, that there will be people who will turn away from the faith, in particular because the cost of following Christ becomes too high. They'll turn away because of persecution. And uh, it's interesting because he says, along with it, you'll see an increase in wickedness. And then he says, the love, and the word is agape there, whereas, which is usually the term that's used to describe Christian love. He said, the love of many will grow cold. And then his exhortation is stand firm, stand firm. 
So that I think the second thing that I would say is a sign of the end times is we're going to see a world that's going to become increasingly antagonistic to Christianity. Is that hard to picture? Okay, I mean, really, it's, it's going to become increasingly antagonistic, and it's going to not be just regional, but it's going to be worldwide. That there's going to be this increasing hatred and despising of believers that's going to try the faith of many. That it's not going to be something that's easy to follow, but rather you're going to find opposition rising up around you. But thirdly, one of the things he says next in line in verse 14, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Uh, it's interesting because we automatically think to ourselves, well, if the gospels be preached to the whole world, then, then that means people are going to be receptive. And I think that's a false assumption. I don't think you can make that assumption. I would like to believe it's true. But one of the things that Tertullian said back in the second or third century, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seeds of the church. That historically, when we follow Christianity around the globe, we find that where the church is under the most intense persecution is where it grows the fastest and the most dynamically. So if we look at the places where Christianity is really beginning to really wither on the vine, it's Western Europe and the United States. Previous to that, where were the hotbeds of Christianity? The Middle East, and it hardly exists there. And it's an interesting dynamic. Historians say that when Christianity uh, begins in a new area, it becomes the persecuted minority. But as it grows and spreads, suddenly Christians become the ones who are in charge with all the power and authority, and they become as corrupt as the kingdoms that they replaced. And their testimony begins to wane. Their power begins to leave them because our strength is in our weakness, not in our, our power, not in human power. And so it is that we look at the world today, and where is the church growing by leaps and bounds? South America, China, India. I have a, a friend who's an underground missionary in Afghanistan, and people are getting saved all over the place. It, it places where Christianity has been all but eliminated, suddenly it's growing. So that, you know, 10 years ago, it was estimated that 1.5% of the people in India were Christians. Today, it's close to 15%. And when you're talking about 15% of a billion people, that's a lot of people. And it's just, it's spreading like wildfire in places around the world. So he said the gospel will be proclaimed, but I don't necessarily think that's going to come as a consequence of us getting more radio and TV stations. I think it's going to become the testimony of those who trust Jesus that as they suffer persecution, they stand for Christ and they hold their ground in faith. And people who are uh, their persecutors, like Saul of Tarsus, are the ones who are one to the faith. Which brings me to what I think is the fourth sign. I've touched on it already. I think the rapture of the church happens someplace here. I mean, to be honest, I don't think that there is any event that needs to take place before the church is raptured. It, it could happen, I think, any time, any moment. It's not like we can say, well, I can count the days until I have to really get serious about God. No, it, it can happen instantaneously as far as biblical prophecy goes. But what is the rapture of the church? Well, for those of you who might not be clear, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul describes it in chapter 4. He said, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, 
and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. This word caught up, translated from, from original Greek into Latin, the Latin term is rapturus, where we get our English word rapture, but the idea is being literally plucked up. You know, reaching down and picking it up and carrying it away, that the church will be caught up together with those who have died in Christ in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we be always with the Lord. Now, where this gets a little confusing is because we have two events that are described in the Scripture. One is us being uh, with the Lord, uh, or, and, and the, I mean, uh, the Lord coming for us, and then the Lord returning with us. Because in 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul makes this statement. He says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. So that the belief is that the church is raptured before the tribulation. And I'll give you a few more reasons in a moment why I think that's the case. And then we'll be with the Lord and we will return with him at the second coming. That's why we're coming back with him to establish his millennial kingdom and to reign with him for a thousand years. Why do I believe it's before the tribulation? Well, uh, not only because of these two events, him coming for the church and then returning with the church, but also in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, he makes the statement that God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care who you are or where you are, if you are on the planet earth during the great or the tribulation, you are going to be victimized by the wrath of God that's coming upon the earth. I mean, as we'll get into it next week, literally talking about, you know, a third of the earth's population perishing because of the cataclysmic things that are going on, the, taking place. And it's environmentally and militarily and all these things, it's just kind of literally all hell breaks out upon the planet in judgment of men's sins. And that's why Jesus said that it, it, even the elect would perish if the Lord didn't intervene beforehand. So that I believe that we are not people who are destined for wrath. But it's also interesting because if we look at how God has administered justice from the Old Testament on, we find that God always removes his people before he judges those who are not his people. Particularly, I think about in, in the story of the flood in, in Genesis chapter 6, where it's just a little notation that's easy to read over and not really catch. But it says, And Noah entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And then further on, he says, And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. In other words, Noah and his family got on the ark, the doors were closed, and they were on the ark, and nothing was happening for seven days. And I believe that the ark of God is the rapture of the church, that he's going to remove the church during the tribulation period and that we do not come back until the second coming. And I think he promises that in Revelation. In fact, it's interesting if you look at the book of Revelation, and we'll get again into this more next week, but if you look at the first three chapters of Revelation, the word church, ecclesia, the Greek word, appears seven times. He talks to seven churches that have the seven candlesticks and so forth and so on. And the word ecclesia is used over and over and over again. When you get to chapter 4, when he begins to introduce the judgments and the wrath of God that comes during the tribulation period, the word ecclesia never appears again. 
It's not used again. So the church is never referenced through the remainder of the book of Revelation. And I believe that's because the church isn't there, particularly because of the promise he made to the church of Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 10, when he said this, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So the word test there is the word to assay. In other words, when, you, when, the, when they want to test the, 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 the uh, content of a precious metal, they, they assay it, they measure it, and that's where they put the stamp on it, 99.99% pure or whatever the calculation is. You can tell I'm not a jeweler, so. Anyway, but it's interesting because when uh, asking a silversmith one time, how do you know when the silver is pure enough to make into jewelry? He said it's very simple because as you heat it, all the impurities rise to the surface and then you remove those, then you cool it and then heat it again and you do that until no impurities rise to the surface. And I said, well, how do you know it's pure? He said, because when it's pure, you can look in the bowl and see the reflection of your own face. So what God is doing is when he's taking you through hardships and trials and difficulties, what he's doing, have you ever noticed when you go through a trial that all the ugly stuff in you comes to the surface? <laughs> you know, it's not like you, you, you know, you go through this difficult time and you come out saying, you know, I just love Jesus more and I love people more. You know, you're just going, you'd rather you're just going, God, what are you doing? And I hate people, <laughs> you know, you, you, and it's not pretty stuff. And what happens? And you see it and you go, oh God, forgive me. I'm so sorry. And you repent. You've just been in the cauldron. And God's been bringing impurities in your life to the surface. But his goal is as you do that and you confess it, he cleanses that from your life until he gets to a place where he can look at you and what does he see? He sees the reflection of his face in your life. So, this is the term that Jesus used to describe the church of Philadelphia. A church that has persevered, has gone through trials, has suffered, and in the end he says there's a trial, there's a, there's a thing coming upon the entire, there's a testing that's coming upon the whole world and I'm going to keep you from it because it's unnecessary because I have declared you to be pure and cleansed. And so I really think that that's a promise that God makes to his church, that he's going to keep us from that hour of temptation and testing that comes upon the earth. Which brings me to the, the fifth thing that I think is a, uh, an event that's going to take place before the great tribulation. And that's what's called the Battle of Gog and Magog. The scriptures clearly speak about a time of great hostility in the end times towards Israel. In fact, uh, uh, Bill Salas does this great thing on, on Psalm 83, and, and the psalm reads this way. It says, with cunning they conspire against your people, they plot against those you cherish. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no war. That's almost a literal statement that comes out of the Palestinian authorities and Hamas when they talk about Israel today. They want to wipe them off as a nation and, they, and the name of Israel shall be no more. Funny story is uh, when Arafat was still alive, he said, we're going to push the Jews into the sea and, and they'll have to drink seawater. 
Today, Israel, 80% of their water comes from the sea. <laughs> they have the most advanced tech. They have solar desalinization plants that provide 80% of all their water needs now. They don't even have to rely upon rain or the Jordan River because they're advanced technology once again. And so I guess he was a prophet. They are literally drinking seawater. Uh, but nonetheless, I digress. But it goes on to say, with one mind, they plot together. They form an alliance against you. It's against God. They don't realize that they're the ploys of the pawns of Satan and they're plotting against God himself in their efforts to destroy the Jewish people. And he says, and the tent, and then he describes who they are, the tents of Adam and the Ishmaelites. <laughs> Interesting. Who are these people of Moab and the Hagarites and Gebel and Am Ammon and, and Amalek and Philistia and Tyre? Well, if you, in Assyria, if you look at a map of Israel and you look at all the countries that surround Israel today, those are the same people he's speaking of here. The countries of Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, uh, uh, and even the Bedouins are mission. The Hagarites are probably the Bedouin people. He's talking about these people are all conspiring, these nations are all conspiring against Israel. What's interesting is that we find that Egypt is never mentioned amongst those who come against Israel. And they're the only country in the Middle East, only Muslim country in the world, who has ever entered into a peace agreement and is currently at peace and in cooperation with Israel uh, against uh, the ISIS terrorists and so forth. There was a brief, brief blip in the Arab Spring where Hamas became empowered and the Muslim Brotherhood came against Israel, but they were removed rather quickly and replaced by a government that is, does recognize the necessity of uh, working with Israel against terrorism. But literally, these peoples understand that really they're just falling into God's bigger plan because Zechariah in chapter 12 made this interesting statement about the end times once again. He says, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. Now, the word surrounding, literally that means in the Hebrew word that's used there means those who are immediately in their surrounding environment. It doesn't mean the whole world, but he says those nations which are around them, Jerusalem will become this thing that basically almost like an intoxicating drug that makes them stumble and fall. The picture in your mind that he's drawing here is kind of like a, a, a drunk who keeps on falling and banging and bumping into stuff. And he says that's what's happened. They'll, they'll come against God's people, but it'll only be to their repeated hurt and destruction and not carry them forth. But he goes on to say in the next verse that that conflict will go from a regional conflict in the Middle East when he says that all the nations will be gathered against Israel. And there are two different levels. We'll talk about one of them next week at the Battle of Armageddon. But he says what, we've, what we're, we're going to see, I believe, because of what we read in Ezekiel, is that the current Middle East conflict is going to appear to be resolved. It seems impossible but it seems to be resolved because in Ezekiel 38, he speaks about the people of Israel dwelling in peace, dwelling in unwalled cities. He says, Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them. And all with shields and helmets, also Gomer with all of its troops and Beth Togarmah from the far north and from all, with all its troops and the many nations with you. In future years, you will invade a land that has recovered from war. 
whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel. You know, in Israel, there's over 100 different nationalities that make up the Israeli people. And he says, which had long been desolate, which it was before Israel came back. And they had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls, without gates, without bars. <clears throat> well, who are these countries? For years, you know, people taught, well, Gog and Magog is Russia, and Meshach is Moscow. And... But, you know, if you do the word studies, that doesn't add up. Who, who are they, is described here is basically Meshach and Tubal are what we call the stands, Turk, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, uh, Kazakhstan. They're all those southern republics that broke off from, from the Soviet Union. And guess what? They're all Muslim. They're all Muslim countries. So this whole region is what he describes first. He's not talking about Russia per se. He's talking about that whole region of the stands that are Muslim countries because this is a Muslim coalition. And then he lists along with it Persia, which is Iran, Kush, which is Sudan, Put, which is Libya. And he goes on listing Gomer, which is Turkey, and Beth Togarma, which is another portion like Turkmenistan and the rest. In other words, it's a coalition of Islamic nations, but again, it doesn't include Egypt or Saudi Arabia. And it's interesting because it says those countries say, what are you doing? Are you going there to take a spoil? In other words, I think they're going to represent it as being a religious jihad, but the truth is they just want to strip Israel of its wealth. And you have to understand, Israel is one of the wealthiest countries in the world today. I mean, they are not only self-sufficient in providing their own water, which in the Middle East is just incredibly more important than anything. It's worth more than gold. But they're also self-sufficient in gas and oil. They have discovered the largest deposits and continue to find the largest deposits of gas and oil, some of the largest that exist in the world today. And so they are energy self-sufficient. Uh, and and uh, it's pretty, pretty amazing to see what's happened with Israel just in the last several years, which again, I would suggest you may indicate to us that God is moving us closer and closer to this time uh, that we're all about. Because Turkey has been working very hard to try to figure out a way to seize control of the gas deposits and oil deposits that Israel has now found in the Mediterranean, which is in their territorial waters. And uh, the Turks don't like it very much. But I also call the Gog, Battle of Gog and Magog, I refer to it as the death of Islam. And the reason why I think that is that when I went, go back to saying the Temple Mount and the, and the Dome of the Rock, something has to happen where the Jews become so emboldened. In fact, I believe that after the Battle of Gog and Magog is where we see not only the, the rise of the Antichrist, but the, the beginning of the tribulation period. It's, and because it's the beginning of tribulation, it tells us in Revelation 6 that the Antichrist first rises to world power and prominence. And it says he enters into a covenant with the Jews. In Daniel 9, 27, he says he will confirm a covenant with many of them for seven, seven years. And in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering, which is when he puts in the middle of tribulation, he puts his image in the temple and creates what's called the abomination that makes desolate. And on the wings of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. So that uh, what happens, something has to happen to Islam that makes it no longer a factor and I think that the destruction of the entire 
political structure, because that's what the Battle of Gog and Magog does. These armies are decimated. They're wiped out. And there's no opposition any longer. In fact, it says in, in chapter 39 that the destruction that will come upon these nations will be literally fire that God will bring from heaven. It'll be so clear that God has destroyed them and that he is on Israel's side at that moment that I think people will turn away from Islam and it'll be a forsaken religion. And they will literally pull down the Dome of the Rock and they will rebuild the temple on that mount at which point when they finish it halfway through the tribulation, then the Antichrist betrays them and sets his image and commands that he be worshipped. And no man can buy or sell unless he receives the mark of the beast. Which brings me to my final sign of the last times. And that is what I talked about on Sunday morning, one world government. Although the idea of one world government has been around for a while, especially for at least the last hundred years. Uh, and I said last you know, on Sunday, because of the carnage of World War II, there was a heightened sense that we need to do something so there will that we won't have war anymore. But it wasn't until the fall of the Soviet Union that many leaders began to think it was even possible because the Soviet Union was always opposed to any kind of unification under anything except the Soviet Empire. But suddenly, overnight, very quickly, and this is what I always love about God, when he wants to change the, the, uh, the, the, the landscape, he doesn't have to wait for processes, he can do it very quickly. And most of us are shocked at how quickly the Soviet Union literally collapsed and went away. But it was interesting because it was on the heel of that that George Herbert Bush, you know, the first George Bush president, made this statement. He says, we have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. That became the phrase, new world order. A world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be successful, <laughs> that's an amazing statement. When we have this new world, and we're going to do this, we have a real chance at this new world order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role, which you understand peacekeeping role is the UN Army, to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN founders, where diverse nations are drawn together in a common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind, peace, security, freedom, and the rule of law. It doesn't surprise me that somebody like George Herbert Bush voted for Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump, because Donald Trump, regardless of what you think of him, is really messing the political class up. And, and you know, it, it, it strikes the very heart because they, he's obviously the anti-one world government guy right now, and uh, which is kind of, I hope he continues that way, but it gives me a little bit of perverse delight. Um, <laughs> but in order to do this, something has to change. You have to reorder. There needs to be a new order. And what the new order is, and they've clear, very clearly stated it in many ways, is the end to national sovereignty. You can't have one world if you have the United States being an independent, sovereign nation. And so you have to find a way in which you can begin to overpower those nationalistic controls and, and, and bring other, everybody under the authority of one central government. It's interesting that every president since George Herbert Bush 
has echoed the very same message about a new world order and one world government. Some were more uh, aggressive in their implementation of it than others, but none as assertive and aggressive and as, can I say, outrageous as Barack, Barack Hussein Obama. And it's interesting how he has affected the sovereignty of the United States. When we talk about things, for example, like climate change and the Paris Agreement and, and, and other agreements about climate change, but particularly the last one, the Paris Agreement, what they essentially do is uh, they, in, they engage in what's called executive, um, executive uh, what's the term, agreements. Now, in America, we're familiar with executive orders where the president just simply writes an order, sends it out, and becomes acted on. And, uh, and you know, most presidents write executive orders. This one is written, not that he's written so many more, but he's written some of the most aggressive ones that in his attempt to bypass Congress, he's just simply said, this is what the departments and different organizations will have to do because I'm the president, I'm telling you what to do. Many of them have brought, been brought to court and have been thrown out as unconstitutional and an overstretch of his authority, but it usually takes four years years for them to ever get to the courts to be thrown out. So by that time, they've been well implemented and it, it creates a very, very different uh, dynamic. But saying all that, it's interesting because in, in the Paris Agreement, <clears throat> do you know they spent hours arguing over one word? And the word was, shall we say, shall or should? Because in legal parlance, they mean very different things. If it says... These nations, these 193 nations should, well, then it's voluntary. If they say they shall, then it's a legal agreement. Well, John Kerry and Barack Obama knew that they couldn't, if they put shall there, they'd have to bring it to Congress. Congress would have to ratify it because shall means it's a treaty, and Congress has to approve all treaties. So what they did is they changed it, and they put should on the opening statement. But every other single item in that agreement uses the word shall. So it's a hidden language of treaty. And what our president did immediately on the signing of that was begin to issue executive orders implementing those things. Well, you know, I don't know what you think about climate change. I wish it was here. <laughs> California has... 10, 15 feet of snow in one storm in their mountains. They're in a drought, aren't they? But they're letting water out of their reservoirs because they're flooding and, and they've got more water than they know what to do. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, we were talking about the word freezing over and now we're talking about it cooking to death. I mean, it, it's just, there is climate change. That's why they went from global warming to climate change because climate does change. It's called spring, summer, fall, you know. I mean, we have changes of climate and so forth, but it is cataclysmic. And, it, and the whole point is if CO2 is really percolating out there in the earth, we know that, that millennia ago, the CO2 levels were significant, 200 high, times higher than they are right now. And what was the earth life? It was tropical because there was so much heat because what happens with that, the CO2, it makes plants grow. The green spaces around the planet have actually increased. Do you realize that the Arctic thinning of the ice has reversed itself for the last two years? We're not hearing about that. And the snow levels have gone back to where they were. The poor polar bears. We went from 6,000 to 25,000. I don't know what we're going to do, except stay out of their way. Well, anyway, I don't have time to go into this in detail, but it's had a crippling effect upon the U.S. economy. 
And that's where we find that at a time in which the United States has been brought into unparalleled debt, I mean, when, when this president came into office, we, had, we were at nine, million, nine trillion in debt, and the talking about, you know, and he himself said it, it was criminal that we allowed the debt to go that high and that the president should be impeached for allowing it to go that high. And since he's been in office, it's gone from nine to nearly, it'll be $20, million, $20 trillion. And that debt load is, is uh, you know, as most people would agree, is at some point unsustainable. But some of these executive agreements that have bypassed Congress are pretty significant. For example, there's the UN Convention on the Rights of Children, which essentially replaces U.S. law in the Constitution with the U.N. statement of what are the rights of children so that you've got to stop spanking your kids. But it's basically being implemented through U.S. agencies and departments today, not over the top of the U.S. Constitution and U.S. law. Um, the global police force, most people don't aware of this, but in 2005, September 2005, well, I'll read the article. It says, Attorney General Loretta Lynch announced at the United Nations, not to the Congress, she's the Attorney General of the United States, and she goes to the UN to announce at the UN <laughs> that her office would be working in several American cities to form what she called Strong Cities Network a law enforcement initiative that would encompass the globe, overriding American laws in favor of United Nations law that would henceforth be implemented in the United States itself without any consultation of Congress at all. In other words, this, this government has simply chosen to bypass the Congress and make laws, and make laws in the presence of the United Nations. I mean, you have to understand, the Attorney General of the United States should never be talking to the United Nations. It's not her job. She doesn't work for them. She works for us. Of course, there's the Agenda 2030, which is a whole other program of, uh, which promotes open borders and redistribution of wealth. It's a whole program that they're trying to initiate, working not with states or governments, not working with states, working with cities. So when you hear about these sanctuary cities around the United States saying, we're sanctuary cities and we're not going to let the federal government tell us what to do. This is part of the agenda that the UN understands that if we're going to take control of the world, we're not going to be able to take control of nations, we're not going to be able to take control of states, we have to take control of cities. And just last week, they completed a, a, a major meeting of almost all the major cities around the world gathering together, part of putting together this agenda to bring together what they call Habitat 3, an urban agenda, and establishing a, a, a regime that will control resources, will basically the idea of, of zoning and controlling, getting people to concentrate into high-rise apartments instead of taking up the beautiful forest lands. One of the things that our president did, you know, he just simply laid hold upon the largest land grab in the history of the United States of over a million acres of wilderness land that he said could no longer be used for farming, mining, grazing, or for uh, drilling for oil or anything of that nature. He just simply wrote it into the law and said, that's what we're going to do. Not because Kronger said, he just simply wrote an order and took that land away. So those farmers, those people are grazing there, the miners and other people, they can no longer work in that territory without being in violation of the federal law. 
But again, all these are coming with the idea of, of emphasizing the city-states and the rights of the city to be self-governed and independent from the national governments that they're part of. And when you read about the sanctuary cities and all around the country, that's what we're talking about. That's what's really going on here. These are the guys who just showed up in, in, in Quito to ha discuss the mayor of San Francisco, the mayor of uh, New York City. The they're all down there having this powwow. I'm sure they're operating on a budget too. But I think that that's just a smattering because I can't, don't have time to go in, into all of the different things. It's, it's, it's so widespread, it's, it's, it's incomprehensible how greater role, and it's all happened because the current president has really opened that door and brought, brought them in. And that's why, as I mentioned on Sunday, it's so significant. As one writer put, he says, Barack Obama will cement the new cooperative relationship between the United States and the United Nations this month when he becomes the first American president to chair its 15-member Security Council. Um, as I mentioned on Sunday, that's a violation of his constitutional powers and duties. The president cannot be the chairman of anything. He has one job, that's to be the president of the United States and his loyalty, when he takes the oath of office, he vows to uphold the constitution which this man regularly has violated. What's also interesting, he's another first for him. You know, he's the first president in the history of the United States who when he leaves office, stays in Washington, D.C. He's not leaving. Uh, I just wonder why. Well, he says it's because his daughter has to finish high school. But here's a thought. Do I think that the UN is the one world government? Do I think the, the, the Secretary General of the United Nations is the beast? Could be. <laughs> but here's what's, what's interesting to me. Um, the Security Council, what is the Security Council? Well, Security Council is a, a, a body of 15 nations that, that have rule-making authority and policy-making authority for the rest of the 193 nations. And it's composed of, of two groups, really. You have one group, which is the, uh, the, the permanent members who have veto power. The United States, the United Kingdom, uh, Russia, China, and... Um, some France. I almost forget the French. But they are basically the five permanent members. They're always there. And then suddenly occurred to me that you also have a group of five that make up the regional leaders. And you find that, for example, five regional members composed of uh, these different parts of the world. Number one, Africa has, or excuse me, Western Europe has two members. Eastern Europe has one member. Um, I forget the order. I've got a different order here. What's the next one? Okay, Africa has three members. And then next to that is Asia. And last of all, Latin America with two. That makes up ten members from the five regional sections. And uh, they don't have veto power, but they, this is a rotational. Every, every year a different nation gets to sit on that council and so forth. What's most interesting to me is that, I mean, it kind of hit me, and it may not mean anything. I may be just blowing wind here, uh, and I have done that frequently. But you have basically five members and five regional members, essentially, which makes ten. And the kingdom of the beast ha is, says it has ten crowns. And I'm just guessing here, but I thought it was an interesting coincidence. 
And we'll just have to wait and see if it makes any sense down the road. Because I reserve the right to change my mind at any point in time. <laughs> well, I've only gone 20 minutes over. So let's pray and we'll let you guys go. Father, I ask that you would uh, use this uh, information that I've shared to stimulate each of us to be students on our own. That I know that there's many of us who feel like biblical prophecy is so above our pay grade that we don't even want to try looking at it. And yet, God, um, it's exciting stuff when you begin to realize that we are reading tomorrow's headlines today. And it assures us in our hearts that, God, you are controlling the flow of history. It's not just something that is coming because of happenstance or circumstance. God, you are directing the world towards a, a point of destiny. And that, Lord, we thank you that we, your people, your church, know that we are saved and we are secure and we are saved and you will keep us, that you created us for an eternal home and not just one here on earth. And we're looking forward to that day, Lord, when we are caught up so that we will be forever with you. Give us that grace, we pray, Father, in Jesus' holy name. Amen.